I don't know about you, but um, I really like to-do lists. Uh, it helps me to get a lot accomplished. So there's just something about, you know, you want something done right. So you make a list of things to do. And then as you do them, you check off the list, right? And sometimes we also bring that mindset to our faith. And where we're like, all right, just tell me what to do or tell me what not to do. And then we check off the list. So, oh, uh, do not murder. Okay, I didn't kill anyone, so I can check that box off. Do not steal. I can check that box off. But what if God is bigger than your checklist? What if God is bigger than our checklist? What if his goal for his commandments are bigger than just modifying our behavior? Well, they are. And as we're in this sermon series, a story bigger than your own, uh, we are looking at God's kingdom, his epic story. And God came into the world and called all kinds of people to join in his story, his kingdom, which is a bigger story, a bigger kingdom. And he wants us to join that as well. And today, Jesus, uh, in our scripture, he's going to be explaining how kingdom living is bigger than typical religious notions of, uh, with checklists of do's and don'ts. Kingdom faith is a deep, heart-transformed faith and not just changing some behaviors. And we see this in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that's where we're at right now, that section of Scripture that's, again, called the, the Sermon on the Mount. G Matthew is saying, uh, giving us an example of Jesus preaching and his teaching that he was doing among the crowds, explaining to them what the kingdom was like and inviting them to, to take part in God's kingdom that is now here, it's at hand. And he started, as we saw last week, this sermon with what are called Beatitudes, which are blessings, where he pronounced blessings on the poor, the humble, the meek, the, the persecuted. And that, just right there, that turns things upside down a bit because in the, our normal way of thinking, in the normal kingdoms of the earth, well, the poor, meek, and humble aren't the ones who are blessed, who have high status. What Jesus, his, his movement is attracting all sorts of, of outcasts, those who were meek, those who were of, of lowly um, consideration, and saying, no, you're in the kingdom now. Yeah, I invite you into the kingdom if you follow me. And he was challenging all sorts of the upholders of religious law. And one of the big themes of the Sermon on the Mount here is that Jesus, he's holding up all sorts of, of religious ideas of that day and saying, no, these fall short of the kingdom. As, as people, as, as the Pharisees and as the religious leaders said, you know, this is what righteous living is. Jesus says, no, I want to tell you what is righteousness and that's a churchy word, so let's define that. That is being right with God. So righteousness is being right before God. And he's challenging their notions. He's challenging the typical thinking of the day and say, actually, that falls short of the new kingdom righteousness that I'm bringing. So let's look. 
And I didn't have a scripture reader today because we're doing a large chunk of scripture, so I'm going to go through it chunk by chunk. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some scholars think that that's sort of a, that last verse is a uh, thesis statement kind of for this whole section, that unless your righteousness your right, you know, uh, exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And what's going on here is as all sorts of outcasts start to come into the kingdom, people who thought, well, they're not going to get into the kingdom, prostitutes, tax collectors, people started to say to Jesus, well, wait a minute, is Jesus doing away with the law and the prophets, meaning the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament? Because all these unrighteous types of people seem to be following Jesus, and he seems to be happy with it. And that's where Jesus comes and says, I, I did not come to abolish the law, the Mosaic law, the, the Old Testament. But I've come to fulfill. So that means he's not coming to contradict the law, but yet he's not leaving the law unchanged. He is bringing the law to its intended goal. That's what fulfillment means, bringing something to its intended goal. And he reaffirms that the scriptures are the authority in the kingdom. They are the infalli they're infallible in their purpose so that even the smallest letter or stroke is binding. So yes, the Hebrew scriptures are relevant, but yet, Jesus says they, they can't be understood unless we understand how they've been fulfilled in Christ. So we don't throw them away, but they also, he doesn't keep the law unchanged because he fulfills it. He brings it to its intended goal. And if he's saying the kingdom of heaven is here, then they're being brought to their intended goal. The new kingdom is Christ's kingdom. And it's one of both adherence to God's word, but also fulfillment of God's word. Therefore, entry into God's kingdom requires a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees had. Now, when, when Jesus said that, I, I imagine a gasp went throughout the whole crowd there. Like, what? The, the, the scribes and Pharisees, they, they follow, you just look at them, the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they act. It's all about following the law. And, and so if our righteousness has to exceed theirs, and yet that's what Jesus says, that kingdom living requires a greater righteousness than what they understood. And so then Jesus goes, this next section, verse 21 through 48, it, he goes through a series of six scriptural commands. And he'll say, well, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he'll quote an Old Testament uh, command, and then he'll show why... Um, 
they have misapplied it. The religious experts have either misapplied it or they have failed to interpret it in light of the kingdom of God is here and present in Jesus. And that's why I'm doing this whole section together. Each one of these things we could dive deep into, uh, but I'm doing it together because it, it, they go together, right? Jesus says, you've heard it said, and when we, and in mind, that's what we're doing. <laughs> it would take me 10 minutes to explain. Why is my, but you, let's just do it, right? So verse 20, um, verse 21, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Does that sound familiar, right? That's, that's one of the 10 biggies, right? One of the 10 commandments. Number six, I believe, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not commit murder. Okay, so you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you, have, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. All right, so this is the first, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you. And he quotes, Jesus quotes the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Again, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. And those who do are liable to judgment. So what do you think the typical thinking of that day would be? What do you think the typical thinking of our day is? Oh, I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone. Check. I, I guess I'm righteous in God's eyes because it's not like I've killed anyone. Check. But Jesus says, wait, you think you're not liable to judgment? You think you're righteous in God's eyes because you didn't kill anyone? I say to you, what about when you're angry at your brother? What about when, and then he gives two examples of an unrighteous anger, of insulting your brother or sister, calling them a fool. He says, you think you're all set with the sixth commandment, but did you get angry? Did you insult your brother or sister? I tell you, you're still liable. You're still liable to judgment. And then in verses 23 through 26, he says, so because you're still liable, go to whatever lengths necessary to reconcile even so, even go so far as leave your sacrifice. You're bringing your sacrifice to the temple to worship God. Leave it there. Better to go and reconcile with your brother. And then he says, or if, if uh, you're going to court, go to your accuser beforehand to make things right. Because you're serious about reconciliation with people. You see, the eternal judge is perfect and righteous, and the kingdom standard is not simply behavior modification. Not simply, well, I didn't kill anyone, but did I actively seek reconciliation? Did I not even want to harm that person? Okay. So after that, what are we thinking, or what am I thinking? Well, we, well I guess, all right. 
I got, I got to erase that. I did not, you know, that check on my checklist. Okay, I didn't murder anyone, but Jesus says that's not the standard. It's, it's did, did I get angry with anyone without a cause? Did I insult anyone? So I, I can't check that box. But maybe, maybe you're saying, no, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And so, you know, you don't insult people. You don't, you don't get mad at people. So you're like, no, no, I can still check that box. I can still check it. Well, Jesus continues, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Wow. So Jesus, he moves on to the next commandment. So he, the do not murder, that's uh, commandment number six on our ten uh, list checklist. He moves on to commandment number seven. You shall not commit adultery. And so the box checkers might say, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm, right, I'm right with God because I haven't had sexual relations outside my marriage. And so now check. But Jesus' kingdom standard says, well, wait, wait a minute. What's, what about your heart? What about your heart? If you've looked at someone with lust, you've already done that in your heart, and therefore you are unrighteous and liable for judgment because God's standards is not just about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. And just as in the murder commandment, Jesus says, and so take drastic measures for, to free yourself. Jesus says, if, and so if your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Now, I don't want eyeballs in the offering plate, so I, wanna, I, I do feel like I need to stop and explain this. This is an example of exaggeration, uh, hyperbole, where, where Jesus is, is saying something to, to prove a point that, no, it, you need to be drastic because this is so important. And, and one of the reasons we know it's exaggeration is that doesn't actually help. Because, and I'll confess that I, with my eyes closed, I can lust. If I pluck my eyes out, I would still lust. So it doesn't help, it doesn't ch change the heart. But Jesus here, uh, what I think he's getting at is that, you know what checklist thinking does when we're looking at, when we look at religion, we look at Christianity as a set of behaviors to do or not do, that checklist, it, you know what it causes us to do? It causes us to, to want to go right up to the edge, to clearly define the different behaviors, not only so that we can do them or not do them, but so that we can also figure out ways to work around it. But Jesus is saying, no, don't go right up to the edge. Don't go, okay, no, I've, I, I can still check the box here. It's like the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be a heart transformation. So you don't want to do anything that would cause you to move away from God. You'd be drastic about it. If, if, if your eyes cause you to, to, to go away from God and get rid of them. And I realize, too, this sounds so strange. This, I mean, in our culture... 
especially the sexual desires one, because we're taught to define ourselves by our sexual desires. But Jesus says, no, you're defined by being a child of the, of the, of the king. But the issue is still bigger than just the seventh commandment of, oh, I didn't touch anyone, so check. No, the kingdom has to penetrate deep into our hearts and transform us and cause us to radically live for God's kingdom. Now, I want to caution you here because we still have a, a ways to go. I'm looking at that clock, but I want to caution you because this is the temptation is that we go, okay, so I've got to erase my check mark for not murder. I mean, I didn't murder, but, you know, I've, I, I've insulted my brother or sister. I, yeah, I didn't commit adultery, but yet I've lusted, so I've got I to erase that mark. And then the temptation is, I, I just got to make a new checklist. You know, I, I just got to move over so the boxes are behavior here. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. But now I'll just move the boxes over. Just tell me what the behaviors are so I can check my box or not. Okay, I, I see Jesus is after more, so I'm just going to move those boxes over. But no, Jesus is not after behavior modification, but kingdom transformation. The goal of the commandments, the goal of Jesus' instructions isn't just to raise the stakes. Again, he's, does it, it's not about the behavior modification. It's about the heart transformation. And, and making a new uh, checklist, it doesn't address the heart issue. It doesn't address our hearts. Because if it was just about upping the requirements, changing the checklist, we would just get more creative in the ways we worked around it. And I think that's where Jesus gets that in this next little section. Speaking of, speaking of workarounds for adultery, Jesus moves on to divorce. And at that time, men would try to get around the adultery requirement by divorcing their wives. Because you can't commit adultery if you're not married to them. Um, I'd put that meme up, but uh, Facebook might take us down. So anyways, uh, verse 31. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let, her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus, now he's moved away from the Ten Commandments, but this is still the law of Moses. He refers to Deuteronomy 24.1 that says, give your wife a certificate of a divorce, allows divorce. And one branch of Judaism at that time said, yeah, you can, it says here in Deuteronomy, you give her a certificate of divorce. So as long as you give her, you know, a certificate suitable for framing to show people, uh, you know, you, you can divorce her for any reason. But Jesus says, no, no, you can't just divorce people. Except, and then he gives the exception for a sexual immorality. And he talks more about that in Matthew 19. And we'll talk about that when we get to Matthew 19. But I want to point out culturally that divorce at that time, it was usually devastating to the woman. Devastating to the woman. And so unless the woman was like the top 1% rich, she would never divorce because she would be destitute. She couldn't own property. That she, you know, so, so the men were the ones who were divorcing. And the reason they would do it is, okay, hey, I don't want to break that law. Don't commit adultery. So I'll just divorce her. And Jesus is saying, wait, you... you 
Your motives aren't to follow God. Your motives aren't to keep the design of marriage pure. Your motives are to get your own way. And in the process, you're making your wife committed, don't you? Some of them who would have to sell themselves into prostitution because they couldn't feed themselves. And Jesus is saying, oh, you want to check that box of I didn't commit adultery, but in the midst of it, you are promoting it. You're not preventing it. It's a hard issue. Continue, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's his throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now here, Jesus, he's actually forbidding what the Old Testament permits. In Leviticus 19.12, in Numbers 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 2, it says, yeah, don't swear falsely, so don't lie, but also if you do swear an oath, make sure you do it. But Jesus says, no, avoid it altogether. So when he says don't swear, he's not talking about curse words like dropping F-bombs. He's talking about making an oath. Like, you know, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. And in in that day, it was very, one of the ways you actually expressed your faith was by swearing by the God that you believed in. So you would swear by Zeus or, but the the Jewish people were very reluctant to swear by Yahweh because they didn't want to use his name in vain. But if they did swear, it was like they'd rather die than break that oath. And so because they want to be able to check the box, there was lots of workarounds. So, okay, I'm not going to swear by God but I'll swear by Jerusalem, or I'll swear by the earth, or I'll swear by my own head, because that's, you know, it's just my own head. It's my head, so can't I swear by it? In other words, you get a little more wiggle room so that if you have to, you know, uh, lie or break a promise, well, then you, you could, you know, that's a good way to do it. But Jesus' point is, wait a minute. You don't even have control over your own head. You can't even make a, your, a hair on your head black or white. This was the day before dying. Actually, they did have hair dyes. They did have hair dyes back then, but they weren't permanent. Um, again, if you're trying to figure out ways to work around seeming honest, but really not, especially if you're invoking God in it, then, then your heart's not right for the kingdom. And so Jesus says, don't do it at all. Kingdom people are those who have integrity of heart so that their words are always true and there's no need for promises, no need for oaths. Now, I know some of you are thinking it. So does this mean I shouldn't swear an oath in court? I done told you we're not making a list. We're not making a list of behaviors. Put him away. Verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now Jesus, he is addressing retaliation. And he quotes that famous eye for an eye passage of Exodus 21, 24, but it's also in Deuteronomy 19, 21. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom requires a greater application than simply not escalating a conflict. No, Christian love and kindness calls us to a radical non-retaliation to break the chain reactions that are so common in human, reaction, in human interactions, in human relationships. Now, each one of these directives has its own context, and so if we want to apply it to today correctly, you know, we really have to dig deep. Uh, so, for instance, turning the other cheek, that's not if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to stay in that. No, rather, uh, that's when uh, one of the, uh, an insult, you strike people with the back of your hand, kind of like Rob, uh, Batman does to Robin, right? And, and, and uh, it was an insult. So, no, turn the other cheek, you're insulted, don't retaliate. Don't hit back. This idea about going the extra mile, this is where we get the phrase from. A Roman soldier, he could take a civilian. He's carrying his stuff, and he could say, all right, Carol, you know, you, you need to t carry my stuff. And she was only obligated to go one mile. That's what the law said. No more. And so each one of these directives has its own context, but the commonality in them all requires kingdom followers to avoid retaliation and act more generously than just the law demands. Because the kingdom has reworked our hearts so much, changed our hearts, changed our perspective, transformed them so that we go beyond checking a box. It's not, hey, what's the minimum? It's what would glorify God most? What would, what would extend his kingdom? What would break his kingdom into this person's life even more? Verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So here Jesus quotes the scripture from Leviticus 19:18, uh, love your neighbor. And that's a popular one for us, isn't it? Right? Love God, love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as Christians, we can often say, ah, yes, I can check that box. Because my neighbor, I've got great neighbors. My neighbor will, uh, sometimes he, he will snowblow my driveway. I really, I, I love him. But Jesus here says, well, no, kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness means loving even your enemy. And it, what's interesting here is it says, Jesus says, uh, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And nowhere in the scripture does it say to hate your enemy, but that was the common interpretation of the day. Because like, oh, no, you got to hate God's enemies like the Romans. Yes, we love our neighbors, but we got to hate the Romans because they're against God. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom calls for a greater love requirement. Because loving 
people who love you. As he says, that's nothing special. Everyone does that. Everyone loves their friends and family. He's saying, you need to love your enemies. And he said, the reason you do that is because that's God's kind of love. He, uh, he makes the sun rise on the good and the evil. He makes the rain come on both the unjust and, and the just. So if you want to reflect God's love, you need to love your enemies. And we see, too, in the kingdom that Jesus, he demonstrates that. And Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So he says the kingdom kind of love is a love even of your enemies. So do you love your enemies? I know I've got my checklist. I... So love your neighbor. I had a check on that, so now i got to erase that. And in the last verse, Jesus gets to the really righteous requirements of kingdom living. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wait, oh, that's, I can't do that. And I've always heard, oh, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't expect perfection. God doesn't expect perfection. Well, Jesus says he, he, he doesn't expect it, but he requires it. Here, Jesus, he raises the standards and says God's kingdom is a righteous kingdom, meaning it is in lockstep with God in every way, not just in external behaviors, but even lockstep in our hearts. So if I were to show you my checklist, so on the top it would have my name, the Reverend Dr. Joseph R. Green, Ph.D. in Biblical Studies, Masters of Divinity. And all the boxes I had checked, they'd be erased. So, what's the answer to that? What do we do then? Let me make my new list. Let, let me try again. I'll make a new list, up the requirements. My friends, burn your list before you get burned by your list. Because the kingdom is here. The king is here. It's not a trying harder thing. It's, a, I'm not, it's not a check mark. It's a changed heart. And it's the, the, the key here is follow Jesus. Because you know all those people who were following Jesus at the time, sinners, tax collectors. Why would Jesus raise the standard? They didn't even meet the old standards. He wanted them to follow him. He invited them. And so the key is the kingdom. You want to get in the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is present with the king, with Jesus. And the fact that we understand all of the more 
that my, yeah, uh, sometimes my behaviors, I can check the list, but my heart, I need a new heart. That, all that does is it raises God's merciful nature all the more. And it causes us, that we didn't before, what does it cause us to be? Poor in spirit. Remember, Jesus kicked off the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. So that if we were at one time thinking, no, I'm good with God, I'm righteous, I got my boxes checked, by this time, we've all erased them. But the key is not to make a new list. The key is to go to the king and to have this mindset that, wait a minute, if Jesus has invited me into his kingdom, and, and I don't know, I, I can't understand why, because I am not righteous, not in deed, but not in, 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 in thought, in heart, then the key is not making a new list. The key is clinging to Jesus. It's following him so that when he is on the move and Jesus is always on the move and he goes to the next place is the disciples are saying, well, he didn't tell me to go away. So I'm going to keep following him. I can't believe it, but, but he's, he's invited me in. And so it makes us want to praise God in his mercy all the more. Wait, Jesus, you still, uh, you told me the kingdom standard, and you still want me to follow him? You, okay, I will follow you. I'll get close to you. And then the gift of Christ's death and resurrection is that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, not just the unrighteousness of our old checklist, but the unrighteousness of a new checklist, whatever we would make, so that we are righteous before God. We are right before God because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. And that makes us praise God all the more. So if you're here today and you're like, yeah, whew, I'm not righteous. Jesus says you're blessed. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are know that there's nothing I can do to get into the kingdom but I'm just going to follow Jesus and allow his heart transformation to transform me from the inside out because that's a part of the gospel, a part of the kingdom. It's not a new list. It's also a new spirit. We didn't get a chance to get into all that, but a part of the new kingdom is God saying, I'm going to give you, not only am I going to forgive your sins, but I'm going to give you a new spirit, a new heart. I want to transform you from the inside out to change the very things that you even desire. And then so then we walk in that. We walk in that kingdom. We walk in those promises. So, you know, I kind of hope that you were leveled today. When I read these scriptures, I was leveled. Because now we're at a place where God can raise us up. Now we're up, up at a place where we're ready for his kingdom. And we say, my, God, my heart is yours. I need your transformation. Let's pray. Dear God, we do confess we need your transforming power. We confess, Lord, that we have fallen short of your glory. We have fallen short of the righteousness of your kingdom. But Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice that you still say, come. Come, those who are poor in spirit, come, enter the kingdom. Lord, I pray that each one of us as we repent of, of the ways we've fallen short, we would not just turn from those things, we would be running to you and asking to transform our hearts and rejoicing. 
and the free gift of your grace. Lord, may that truth so fill us today that we're going to sing this last song with a joy, with a conviction, oh Lord, but also a joy that you have invited us in because you are merciful, you are good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.